folks, just wanted to give you a heads up that the Gnomecast is going to be taking a short holiday hiatus. We're going to miss an episode on January 4th, but we'll be back with all the gaming advice goodness on January 18th. Hope everybody has a lovely holiday season and see you in the new year. Welcome to the Gnomecast, the Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by awesome Patreon backers like the jubilant Jim Anderson, the cunning Carla Everson, and the dashing Daniel Markwig. Today we have myself, Ange, along with JT and Lori, and we pick up where we left off in the last episode, where Lori is going to ask us more questions about running a campaign for the first time. Before we dive into that main topic, though, we're going to ask our Get to Know a Gnome question. So what is your favorite homebrew setting? JT, I'm going to start with you. All right. So my favorite homebrew setting is not one that I made. Uh, I have made dozens over the, the decades, but uh, my, my favorite is Bill's World. Uh, the, the name of the world is Soleus. And it has it, it is your typical fantasy world, but with a lot of oddities thrown in. Um, and, and what I mean by that, we have uh, he has the, the Black Road, which is a perfectly black, straight road that cuts across, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of miles of uh, territory. And when you travel on it, you travel faster than normal. So you can get from point A to point B a little quicker. However, you don't want to sleep on it because it turns you into beef jerky. Um, it, it's a great way to make trail rations. Uh, while traveling along, we came across a flock of turkeys. Uh, my wizard was like, cool, turkey hunting time. Magic missiled a few of them to, to make some food. And it turns out the, the, the head turkey was not a turkey, but a cockatrice. And yeah, I ended up getting turned to stone. Um, fortunately, one of the other uh, members in the party had a, a solution for that. Uh, so I was quickly back to flesh again. But we uh, uh, defeathered the turkeys and sliced them up and threw the meat on the road. And within an hour or so, we had some turkey jerky. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, he also has a rich and detailed history about it. Uh, much of which is not, um, you, you kind of discover through play though. The world feels very lived in and it is lived in. He he's run campaigns in Soleus since early first edition days. Uh, so it, it's got a rich detailed history. Um, it's just, a, it, it's a great fun world to play in. I haven't played in it in a few, quite a few years. I think it's uh, time for me to annoy him and see if we can get back to Soleus someday soon. So there you go. Uh, how about you, Lori? What about you? One of my favorite homebrew campaign worlds is called Stonewall. Stonewall is a 5e campaign that my friend Joe created in April of 2020 via Zoom as a way to stay connected during the pandemic. It's a fantasy world where our characters defended the Temple of Drachma against the undead, fought the evil necromancer Malaf, arrived through time and space to a creepy underworld dungeon called Deep Silence and defeated a serpent queen. Joe created elaborate maps at length and used technology. He sent out emails and reminders and really made it the really hard year doable. It's on ice right now, but we'd like to return to it someday soon. Yeah. How about you, Ange? What's your favorite homebrew world? So my buddy Tristan has a homebrew world um, that he calls Silua which he has been running off and on since uh, the early 90s. Uh, he has run a campaign in it in uh, second edition, a campaign in third edition, a campaign in fourth edition, and a campaign in fifth edition. I have had the privilege of taking part in the one that happened for fourth edition and the one that is currently running for fifth edition. And one of the things I really enjoy that he does is he... After each campaign, he advances the timeline. So my character and companions in the uh, fourth edition game were the ladies of Fazdel. It was 
three female characters plus our one male dwarf cleric NPC who kind of tagged along with us. But the three of us were the kind of the driving motivators of that group. And we got to have some encounters with the, the PCs from the previous campaign as we were on our journey kind of stumbling into being epic heroes. The, the ladies had a negative wisdom modifier when you combined us all together. So wow. we were not the we were not the most wise characters in the world. <laughs> but we, you know, successfully defeated a necromancer trying to become a lich in that one and then ended the campaign in a really epic dramatic fashion. And then when 5th edition came around, Tristan decided he wanted to run one for our our larger group. So we advanced the timeline 20 years and now all of our NPCs, all of our PCs that were in the previous campaign are now power play power player NPCs in the current campaign. I That's had awesome. such a fangirl moment when I realized we were interacting with my character from the previous campaign. Cause like, I'm like, I know who this is. I know who this character <laughs> is. And the other thing too, is that Tristan is really, really fantastic about integrating the player's ideas into his game world. So for that fourth edition campaign, I was like, I want to play a changeling rogue. He had never had a changeling in his world. So he's like, rather than saying, no, changelings don't exist in my world. He's like, okay, let's see if we can figure out a way to make changelings fit in this world. And we came up with this whole mythology for why changelings existed, kind of made them even more fey than they are in straight D&D. And then just it made that so much stronger for that character. He's done the same thing with Genasi, with... We had one player who wanted to play a, a dark elf and all these things that just he takes the player's ideas, fits them into the world and then makes it feel like it's always been that way, which I absolutely adore. That's hard to do and very awesome that he does that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's I rave about that campaign constantly. So let's move into our main topic of conversation. Uh, Lori, why don't we pick up where we left off and move into your questions about building and running campaigns? So take it away. What kind of genres do you like to use for your campaigns? Fantasy, historical, Star Wars, superhero? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, same. Same answer. Um, To to quote Phil and Senda, um, I am what I consider polygamorous. While I love D&D and play a lot of that type of fantasy game, I play a lot of other games. For my campaigns, I have done the high fantasy. I have done superhero. I have done space opera. I've done, you know, like modern paranormal monster hunting games. You know, I just, I love a broad swath of genres for games. So it's like, I've, I've done campaigns in most of these, probably not historical, although I do do a little bit of uh, like Victorian steampunk style monster hunting stuff too. What about you, JT? So my two go-to genres are going to be fantasy and cyberpunk uh, and like, and I've I've done oh man name a genre I've probably played in it if not run it over over the decades but I love fantasy because that's my warm blanket you know that, that that's my 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 home if you will because that that's what broke me into role playing was the old red box D and D gosh it was nineteen eighty three I guess cyberpunk I I have been in love with cyberpunk since reading the first William Gibson short story in Omni magazine back sometime nineteen eighty something something something. <laughs> So I, I guess I was probably a teenager then. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, and just the 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 ideas and concepts that cyberpunk evokes in me 
is is so exciting and thrilling. Uh, it's like an electrical charge running through me. So I, I love Cyberpunk 2020. I have Cyberpunk Red, have not yet gotten it to the table, which makes me sad because it's a good system, or at least on paper, you know, reading the book tells me it's a good system. You know, I haven't had the rubber meet the road yet on that system. So we'll see how it goes when I get it to the table here in the hopefully near future. What are your thoughts on using a published campaign setting versus creating a homebrew setting from scratch? Do you have any favorite settings? You want to lead off with this one, JT? Sure thing. So, all right. Published campaign setting versus creating your own. Both are overwhelming for a new DM. Uh, They really can be (laughs) because creating the world from whole cloth is a lot of work. Learning a published campaign setting is a lot of work. So my advice is to explore the world with your PCs, but be one step ahead of them. So don't create the whole world. Create the town and the surrounding area that they start in, and that gives them room to explore without you needing to make up too much on the fly. And if they head northeast to the next nearest ruin or abandoned temple or town or whatever the goal is, right? Then you kind of expand your map out to the northeast to, to build up that surrounding area. So, so that's how it's, that's really the easy way to do it. And that is true for both published and creating your own. You don't have to learn all of Forgotten Realms. There's probably over a million pages of stuff, uh, of printed material for Forgotten Realms, both in novels and in role-playing media. And that's not counting all the wikis and the online stuff. So you don't need to have read and memorized and know all million plus pages of, of goods for Forgotten Realms. All right. You, you, you pick a starting point, you learn about that starting point to the best of your ability, and you expand out from there. Because if you learn, I don't know, the jungles of Cholt, but you're starting in Neverwinter, there are many thousands of miles in Forgotten Realms between Neverwinter and Cholt. Will your party ever reach Cholt? Probably not. So why waste your time reading about the jungles when your campaign's never going to go there? As far as favorite settings go, Forgotten Realms is is top of my list. I love Forgotten Realms. I've not read all million plus pages of it. I've probably read half the material available <laughs> for Forgotten Realms. At one point, the I think it was during the yeah both second and edition third edition eras of D anD D. I had everything Forgotten Realms, and it just became overwhelming, and so I sold it all. <laughs> so, so there you go. Yeah, I'm going to say Forgotten Realms is probably my favorite setting. Yeah, how about you, Ange? I think when JT said that both are overwhelming is incredibly true. They're just both overwhelming in different ways. Yes. With a published setting, you can start to feel overwhelmed because there there can be a vast wealth of information out there. And if you don't understand how to, as JT said, figure out where you're starting and focus on that, it can start to feel overwhelming because you're like, Oh, I don't know all of this. I don't know what to do with it. Oh, I don't know. Oh, dear. Conversely, with a campaign, you are creating the world from scratch. You have the complete freedom to do whatever you want, but you also have the responsibility of filling in everything and doing everything. I I specifically have struggled with this with my space opera campaigns because I don't necessarily want it to be Star Wars. I don't want to do Star Trek. I don't want to do Firefly. I kind of want my own space opera game. But you have to decide a lot of factors of how that campaign world is going to work. How does space travel work? How are there aliens? Are there and it gets very overwhelming trying to fill in those details 
as the campaign goes. And I have actually burned out on a couple of campaigns because I'm like, in addition to setting up the game and running it for the players, I also have this added stressor of how does this universe actually work? How does these systems work? What, uh, you know, what am I dealing with with the overarching story of this universe? And that can get a little overwhelming. But at the same time, it is yours. You can do with it as you will. And honestly speaking, your players probably aren't going to notice too much that you're scrambling to fill in details unless you tell them you're scrambling to fill in details because they're going to ask a question. You're going to give them an answer. They don't know that you just thought of that answer in (laughs) five seconds since they asked the question. Absolutely. Yes. I will say one of the nice things about a published setting, though, is that you have references, you have sources you can go to. I have been running an Eberron campaign for a while. I will say Eberron is probably my favorite setting. I mean, I love a lot of different settings, but Eberron has a special place in my heart. And one of the things I love is that I can basically, you know, either go through the books I have or um, just go to Google and search Eberron's name of thing I'm searching for, find some information and start building off of that. I don't necessarily need to know the whole world. I just need to know this thing that I'm dealing, you know, like dealing with. Like in my previous Eberron campaign, uh, the players needed to go, tr- like somebody stole something and they needed to go track down this artifact before these people got to it. So where are they going to go? Oh, look, there's this little dot on the map that says Black Pit. What is Black Pit? Look it up in the books. Look it up on Google. Oh, it's a small, dirty little mining town. Okay. My players get to go to Black Pit, and I basically got to fill in some details that didn't exist about that town. And then they have to go up into the mountains and find this lost temple that had been, you know, lost to the ages, and then go in there and explore it. And like all this stuff is just based on little bits and stuff I heard, I read here and there about Ebron. To be completely honest, at this point, I can't tell you what pieces of my Eberron campaign are actual canonical stuff from the setting and stuff I've made up along the way to fit in. So it's like both published campaign and homebrew campaign have their benefits, advantages, and their disadvantages. Yep. And to piggyback on something that Ange just said, look, I'm just going to throw a number out there, but there's probably, let's say a million game masters running Forgotten Realms in the world, across the world. That means there are a million and one versions of Forgotten Realms. There's the published canonical, this is quote unquote fact, you know, as published in the books, that's your version one. And then every game master is going to fill in the blanks because there's a lot of blanks in Forgotten Realms, which is the power of that that, that published setting. Every game master is going to fill in the blanks in their own way. They're going to change the canon in their own way. When you hit the table with a published campaign setting, it's yours and your group's version of that published campaign setting. Mm-hmm. If you get that player that's like, no, Elminster's hair is long and white, not curly and black. <laughs> that's when you get to say, well, you know, in, in our version that we're playing, his hair is going to be curly and black, uh, or maybe he's in disguise, or maybe it's a young Elminster, or Wild Magic just messed him up, or whatever. Right? You know, just pre-published campaign setting books are not holy texts. They don't have to be yes. revered and adhered to as if you're going to commit a sin because you got some fact wrong, or because you intentionally changed some fact that's published in the book. We already talked about session zero and the stew has covered this before, but what are your thoughts specifically on players creating characters? Do they do this together or separate? Do you have them make their characters available for you or the group online? Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things I do with all of my campaigns is I set up 
parameters. Um, I tell the players, these are the guidelines with which you need to make your characters. Um, so I will say something like, um, for the current Eberron campaign, it's like, you make a third level character, they can be any race, any class, but they have chosen to come to Sharn and participate in this contest to be part of an expedition going to Zendrick. You have to decide what your reasons are for wanting to be part of this expedition. And that kind of gave them a framework to make the characters and want to be part of the adventure because nothing pisses me off more than somebody making a character that doesn't want to go on an adventure. Yes, the lone wolf. My character wouldn't do that. Okay, great. Make a new character. Yeah, I am. I have no sympathy for it anymore. It's like the, the like, and people will be like, "But this is the way. This is the way Bilbo was. This is the way Peter Parker was. They didn't want to be adventurers." And I'm like, "Yes, but they eventually heard the call to adventure and joined in the fun." You know, like you can have a reluctant hero. You just need to make sure that they still have a reason to do the stuff. Yeah. As far as making characters together. Most of the time I will do session zero and we will have everyone make characters together during session zero. But a lot of times the players will still come with ideas of who and what they want to play. And session zero is basically refining and connecting those characters together. As far as the last part of the characters available for you or the group online, I always want to be able to see the character. So I like having a copy of the character. And to be completely honest with us playing online, we have everybody's character available for everyone to play. This way, in, the, in the, the virtual tabletop we use, it's easy enough for somebody to pick up and run somebody else's character when we have somebody who's absent for whatever reason. So it's like, so people can see each other's characters and that's that's no big deal. What about you, JT? Uh, similar, yeah, set parameters, just like you do. Uh, you know, we're we're going to be starting in this place. The initial goal is going to be something along these lines. If I have a highly specific concept in mind, like... Uh, Many years ago, I had an idea of a uh, uh, plague struck a dwarven clan. So everybody had to be from that dwarven clan. That means 100% of the party was dwarf. One player was like, I only play elves. Not this time. You're Sorry, you're dwarf. Yeah. Um, he opted not to join the game, which, okay. You know, the, the, the concept of the campaign is you're trying to save your dwarven clan from this plague. So off we go. Seth Korkowski has a really excellent video on this called The 13th Warrior talking about when somebody makes a character that is completely different from what everyone else is making. So like if JT had allowed that player to make their elf character that was participating in with this dwarf clan to save their home, that would have changed the dynamic a lot. And like you would have had to put yeah. a little more focus on this oddball that's part of the group and all that. And like sometimes like it can work sometimes, but most of the time ha make sure the players are are like sticking to the parameters you set up. Absolutely. It's not going to be fun if they make something that's not going to fit the campaign you're trying to run. Right. My concern was the elf would have no care or concern about the plague striking down the dwarves. Mm -hmm. And as far as making characters together or separate, definitely together. Definitely. And I have all my players, and this is kind of something we just all naturally do. We've evolved into this over time. Everybody shows up with two to three character concepts. That way... If you show up with one and your one concept is I want to play the cleric and two other people want to play clerics, they got three clerics in the group, then that just usually doesn't work out too well for the long term of the campaign. So I have everybody show up with two or three 
and they will all present them, not like a presentation with slideshows or anything, but they, they'll, we'll talk about their different concepts and work through and everybody picks their own. We end up with two clerics in the group. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's fine. My, my group tends to um, discuss ahead of time through email. Like, like somebody's like, I'd like to play a rogue this time. And that way we can kind of like, you know, it's not creating the character whole cloth. It's just like, this is the, this is like the species class combo I want to do this time. Gotcha. And then we can right. like, like people come to session zero with that idea and like in a little more of an understanding of where the balance of the party is. So we'd like, we know if we need somebody to pick up the healing, we know if we need somebody to pick up being, you know, more of the, the melee combatant, that type of thing. That works. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. Uh, we use discord for our group and one of our players rarely checks it and another player checks it like saturday early afternoon to make sure that we're still gaming that day so that's it uh so so that makes that a little more difficult as far as making characters available to me the 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 game master or the group online when everybody's done with their characters they hand me the character sheets i jot some quick notes you know species class once they get higher level like in D &D 5 once they've picked their sub class i'll make notes of that and that's about it really I, i i don't need my notes to be too extensive about each uh, PC, and we don't really make them available for anybody else online because we play in person. Yeah. If one or two people are out, we don't. We just don't game. Well, we game, but it's it's board game day, not campaign day. And we have so many board games floating between our group that it's actually a, a refreshing break to be able to bring a board game to to play. So, do you put limitations on the characters you allow your players to bring to the game? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it, it's more it's more campaign guidelines. Like here's the story that. I want to tell together and I need your character to fall within this framework. And and that's about it. Every once in a while, I come up with a story idea that's very specific, like the Dwarven clan idea. But for the most part, no. I will set limitations on things like I do not have any desire at all to run a PVP campaign. So um, I ask that the players make characters that are there to work together. It kills my enthusiasm once a game starts hinting at even having PvP between the players. Same. I just don't want to deal with that. Um, so I tend to... Like, alignment doesn't matter as much now as it used to in D&D, but I ask no evil. Don't don't make an evil character. I have no Same. desire yep. to deal with that. So I will put that type of limitation on there. I will also, generally speaking, um, have them stick to published materials. Especially with something like D&D, there is a ton of third-party stuff out there. Well, some of it is fantastic, some of it is not. And rather than <laughs> feeling like I have to wade through everything to figure out if this third-party subclass is going to like unbalance the game, it's like I just I ask the players, generally speaking, to stick to the published material. And I do this for pretty much any type of game I'm running. You know, I'm very flexible within the set, you know, the game I'm running. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't want to have to feel like I'm in the dark about somebody's character concept. And I've, I've seen what happens when you just indiscriminately allow a third party or off brand thing into the game without really investigating it. And it can really, you know, it can really throw the whole party out of whack if everyone's not quite on the, the same playing field. Do you have one more other universe you use for all your campaigns, or are they completely separate from one another? 
So for me, all of my cyberpunk games are in Night City because that's the default setting. And it, it's it's a great setting. I have no reason to go replace it or change it. Well, I'll change it some, but I, I have no reason to not use Night City because they did a great job on it. For my fantasy type stuff, if I'm running a pre-published adventure or pre-published campaign, I will use whatever world it's set in because that's the easy button. Uh, typically, it's going to be Forgotten Realms for me. If I'm running like a homebrew campaign, I tend to use my own world that I've created called Loramore. And that's because I have all my world details and all my maps and such in a wiki that I've built out. And I have a 9,000 page wiki that I've written all by my lonesome. <laughs> of course you do, JT. <laughs> of course I do, yes. Uh, only one continent is currently detailed. There's four others that I haven't touched yet other than to sketch out the geography map. So I haven't even placed towns or locations or anything in the other four continents. So these 9,000 pages that I have is for one continent. Granted, it's the largest of the five, but still. But on my wiki, I have every city named. I have the population and economics of every city determined. I have every establishment and establishment named for every city on the continent. Now I'm a software engineer, so yes, I did leverage that 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 skill set to do some <laughs> auto generation of of a lot of this data and inject it into the wiki. But I still read through everything to make sure that I, you know, didn't have the prancing pony in because that's Tolkien's stuff, right? So uh, I use my own world because I put a lot of time into that world, a lot of time. So uh, and it's a good solid world. I like it. Uh, I've got a trilogy of novels set in that world. Uh, the world will never see those novels. It was my practice trilogy. It was no good. Maybe I'll go back and rewrite that someday. I don't know. Uh, so there you go. Uh, how about you, Ange? It depends. My current Eberron game, I consider to be the same same version of Eberron that the previous campaign took place in. You know, so there's there's NPCs that are common to both campaigns. There's some shared lore. Most of it doesn't matter in the long run because... The play, you know, unless the players are interacting with it, it generally doesn't matter too much. But I appreciate like what what I described my buddy Tristan doing, where the PCs from the previous campaign are now NPCs, and what they have done has changed the world and affected it in ways that we can see and interact with. But for the most part, my games are all kind of separate from each other based on whatever genre or setting I'm using. Like I don't consider my Waterdeep Dragon Heist campaign to be in the same universe as my Eberron campaigns. You know, those are two separate things. Now, technically, with Spelljammer out there uh, and Planescape on the way, you can totally blend all of this to your heart's content. Uh, but for the most part, I keep my games separate unless they're in the same exact world. Do you ever do anything special for your campaigns like dress up, play spooky music, or decorate processions? I've never found music to work well with gaming. I've never been able to manage that. And I don't I don't do dress up. What I will do though is I make fancy handouts. Um uh, I will I will go out of my way to um uh create things that will enhance the game. Like somewhere around here I actually have a paper craft. It's not a it's not a full boat. It's basically just the map of a ship glued to cardboard so i have a a ship that i could plop down on the map so we could basically have our 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 sea seafaring journey 
with minis on a map and like it's not static it, i can move it and i don't have to just redraw it every time something changes you know so i i i put a lot of i put a lot of graphic designer touches on my campaigns when i run them so the materials the the presentation that type of thing um but i don't necessarily do the other stuff you mentioned yeah, I'm in I'm in the same boat as Ange. Um, I, I don't do the dress up. I don't even dress up when I go to the rent fair. So, and there's a civilian, <laughs> not a participant. So, m- music we basically just have classic rock radio playing in the background on a robot lady device. I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to trigger somebody's robot lady. <laughs> we don't decorate. Years ago, I was in a Vampire the Masquerade game, and the host required us to play by candlelight, which sucked because you couldn't see your dice, you couldn't see your character sheet. You had to hold the character sheet so close to the candle that there was fire hazard. Sure, it was great ambiance, but it was a crappy play experience. Sorry, I almost used a different word there. It was a crappy play experience. It just sucked. And this was in my mid-20s, I guess. So now I'm, I'm about to turn 50 here pretty soon. No, I, 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 I evaluate my dice by can I read them from a two-foot distance now, right? I mean, I, I avoid the pretty ones because I can't read the damn things. Yeah, but like I said, uh, handouts. I love handouts. I have a whole slew of art supplies, and I'll make tea not to drink, but to stain the maps. And if you turn your oven on real low, you can tea stain parchment, or you charcoal draw on it, then you tea stain it, and then you slap it in the oven at a really low temperature, not for very long. You got to like constantly look at it, and it'll curl up the edges, and maybe the edges will get a little char on them, and that's when you stop right there. Boom. You got to open up the oven and pull them out and, and you know, pat out the fire and hope that it didn't burn part of the important map. I've done that. That sucks because you got to start over. Uh, I'll, I'll do the, the really cool touchy-feely handout type stuff. I also have my iPad as my main source of information while I'm gaming, uh, both as a player and a game master. And I will preload images for this is what this NPC looks like. This is what this monster looks like. Uh, this is, the if I can, the view of the city. Uh, as you're approaching and I'll just load up the image and hold up my iPad over the, over the screen so that they can get a visual. If you are looking for dress up and ambiance and all that, you may want to go look at LARPs. Yeah. I'm not a LARPer. I don't enjoy them. There's a wide variety of reasons I don't enjoy them, but they are the place where you can really, really get into creating an ambiance, uh, going full costume, Wen Reichel, who used to write for us here at Gnome Stew, posts a whole bunch about the the LARPs that he goes to. And these things are absolutely fantastic. And everyone is like in character and in costume. And these are amazing. And I'm like, that is awesome. I have no desire to participate because it's not my jam. (laughs) But if that is what you are looking for, you might want to start looking at LARPing. When do you end your campaign? What is the longest campaign you've ever run? I'll answer the easy question first. The longest campaign I've ever run is about two and a half years. It was an all-thief campaign set in Lankmar, which is the Fawford and Grey Mouser city that Fritz Lieber uh, uh, created. Of course, there's oodles of source material for D&D, Savage Worlds, and Dungeon Crawl Classics for Lankmar. Um, so it's very easy to get into. Granted, the D&D source material is for second edition D&D. Uh, so the stat blocks aren't going to line up for your third, fourth, fifth edition D&D, but the core material is still valid. That one died off because everybody graduated high school, moved off to college. So but the, the players scattered to the winds and that kind of killed the campaign. Uh, how do I know when to end? I, I kind of have three answers for that. When your core group scatters to the wind, like 
everybody goes off to college. Uh, now that I'm an adult that's established in a, a, a city and all that, the odds of that happening are fairly slim. We might lose one person, like if their job transfers them to Dallas or whatever, but the whole group itself is pretty stable. We're, we're not going to scatter to the wind. So those days are over for me, I hope. Uh, another time the campaign ends is when all the characters die. A TPK, total party kill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> your, your campaign kind of ends there. You can regenerate and continue the campaign with a different alternate set of, of characters that maybe not pick up where the old people left off, but, you know, kind of, kind of uh, adjacent and you, it takes some finagling and some work, but you can continue the story with a different uh, party. And that just depends on your campaign. I mean, if, if the whole campaign was based around uh, six brothers going to rescue their, or find their runaway dad and all six of those brothers die, unless you got six more brothers waiting in the wing to take their place, that's pretty much a dead campaign. So a natural conclusion to a campaign where the story concludes is when you run out of a pre-published module, or if you have in your mind a beginning, middle, and end for your story, and the party reaches that natural end conclusion, that's pretty much when the campaign should end. Yes, if you're enjoying the setting and the characters, you can make a new beginning, middle, and end, but the payoff for that usually is not as good as the original. So how about you, Ange? When, When do you end your campaigns? Well, my, my longest running campaign is probably my first Eberron campaign. To clarify, the way my group functions is we have several ongoing campaigns that we will do seasons of, like like a TV show. We'll have a we'll play for a certain amount of time, and then we will end the season, put that campaign to rest, play something else for a while, and then at some point that campaign will come back up. Um, my longest running campaign was that Eberron one. Uh, my previous Eberron one that I started in 2011, and I want to say the last time we played was 2018. And we finished the season, ended kind of on a cliffhanger, and then for a variety of reasons have never gone back to it. So that campaign is essentially done, uh, and I ran it off and on for six to seven years. So that's the longest one I've run. As far as when to end a campaign, as JT said, when you come to the end of the material you're using. So I ran Waterdeep Dragon Heist and I ended it when we finished the 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 adventure path. And honestly, I was about ready to kill all of the characters in that game anyway, because <laughs> they were starting to get to that PvP point. And I'm like, oh, no. there's absolutely no reason for you guys to be working together. We're done. Right. As soon as you guys finish this, we're done. Generally speaking, we, my group, Um, Because we do the seasons style of play, we end a season at a good stopping point and when the GM needs to take a break. My group was talking about switching from the Eberron campaign I'm running to picking up Tristan's Silua campaign after the first of the year, but we realized that this past Saturday was our last session for 2022, and I still have a whole bunch more ready to go for my Eberron campaign. So I'm going to continue to run for a while into the new year and give Tristan more time to prep for picking up his uh, his campaign again. The the dream goal of any GM is to run forever and ever and ever and have your campaign (laughs) be this magical, endless thing that the players always enjoy. That's not realistic. Agreed. (laughs) Most campaigns don't actually end. Most campaigns kind of sputter out for a variety of reasons. So you have to kind of figure out where your stopping point is for a GM, for the group, and for the narrative of the game. 
Do you have any last pieces of advice? I, I think my biggest piece of advice is is just do it. It seems like it's really hard. It seems like it's really intimidating and overwhelming, but it's honestly not. It, if you are playing with the right people, it is not that. It's actually very rewarding. Your your players aren't aware of all of the mistakes you know you're making. They're, 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 they don't see them, you know? So it's like, be gentle with yourself. Be honest with your players. I tell my players flat up when I, you know, like, oh, hey, I don't have this prepared. So can we do something, you know, like, like I am honest with my players. And I know I will get some flack from some people who say, you should never do that. You should always keep uh, the wizard's curtain between you and your players. They shouldn't know how the, the bread is made, so to speak. But I don't believe in that. I, I really don't. I mean, there's a certain level of mystery when you're at the table in the middle of a session. But afterwards, I'm like, no, yeah, this is this is what I was dealing with. Like, I recently had a situation where I completely misjudged what my players were going to pick up and run with. I had planned for them to begin their exploration of the jungles of Zendrek, not realizing I was putting a plot hook in front of them that they would investigate immediately. And so there was a missing priest. And they're like, oh, the priest is missing. Well, let's follow up on this. And all of a sudden I realized as they're starting to talk about it, I'm like, oh, crap. Uh -oh. <laughs> I don't have anything prepped for this. And it totally makes sense that this is what they would focus on and investigate today. Okay, then let's quickly find a map of the sewers and throw in some bad guys and, you know, like find a token for this lost priest. <laughs> and, you know, like I completely made this whole whole adventure encounter up on the fly and once we were done i told my players look i made a mistake i wasn't expecting you guys i don't know why i wasn't expecting you guys to follow up on father Tokorin's disappearance but there we go and they're like you really made that all up on the fly and i'm like well i kind of had an idea of what was going on i just didn't expect you to engage with it right now so <laughs> like be honest with your players um especially if you're a new gm if your players are good people and good friends, they want you to succeed as much as you want to give them a good game. So my last bit of advice is breathe, relax, chill out. It, it's all good. I, I realize you probably got you know, anywhere from four to six people staring at you over the GM screen, like with these blank expressions, wondering what's next. It is a collaborative storytelling event. Throw things over the screen at your players of... Uh, you walk into a tavern, you point at a player and say, you know somebody there, who are they and how'd you meet that person? It's not all on your shoulders. Work with your players to collaborate with them. Now, make sure your players are aware that you're going to do this to them because if they're not aware that they're going to be world building with you, that can be problematic because they're not going to be ready for it and they're gonna, their brain is just going to seize up. I have some players who thrive on that and some players who I cannot put on the spot like that. Same here. Um, Same if I here. put them on the spot like that, they just freeze up and it kind of kills the momentum of the game. It really does. So know your players. Um, also, if you're uh, having fun, you're doing it right. And what I mean by that is if you get a rule wrong, who cares? If it, if it was a fun way to play the game, cool. Now, if during the course of a session, you realize you messed up a ruling two hours ago, don't retcon it. Don't go back and retroactively condition it. Don't, don't change it. At the end of the session, when everything's said and done, either immediately talk with your players about it of, hey, I messed up this ruling, I got it wrong, or maybe your player will come to you and say, hey, you messed up this ruling, here's how, the, how it's really supposed to work. Um, 
talk with them and say which is more fun, the way the rule is written or the way we played it. And you can house rule it. Um, and it doesn't have to be immediately after the session. It depends on your mentality. I like it immediately after the session. And maybe I don't make a decision on it until the beginning of the next session. It gives me a week to ruminate. And we can also discuss it through email, Discord, whatever your offline between session communication method is. Yeah, j- just ponder the quote-unquote incorrect ruling and see if you want to make that the correct one moving forward. Don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah, yeah. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website. This ad is brought to you by finally wrapping up 2022. I can't believe we made it to the end of the year, but we hope you had some fantastic gaming experiences and 2023 holds even more amazing games for you. If you're enjoying the Gnome Cast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Misdirected Mark, Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry break down and get inside games, game mastering, playing games, and game design in an effort to entertain and inform you. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Um, Gnomes, is there anything else you'd like to give a shout out to today? Yeah, I've got two things, actually. So kind of on our topic of the world building, I am going to recommend Asgar's Fantasy Map Generator. Don't worry about trying to learn how to spell that. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, it generates high-level fantasy maps you can zoom in on, you can play with, you can regenerate them. It'll make a whole new one for you. It, it is web-based, so there's no software to install. Uh, I believe you can download and re-import the world and and uh, you know, uh, you know, screenshot and print and blah, 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 and all that. It's really, really fun. It, it, I, I, I will sometimes spend 20, 30 minutes just hitting refresh just to get a new world. So it's that kind of, it's, it's fun. On the personal side... About two weeks ago is the time you're going to be hearing this as the episode drops. Uh, I had a new sword and sorcery novel called Dark Blessing come out on Amazon. If you like high action stories with a moderate amount of magic set in a sprawling city landscape, you'll love the story about AL and Styles. Uh, we'll also have a link in the show notes. How about you, Ange? Any, uh, any last minute recommendations here? Uh, so for the folks out there who like D&D but aren't super deep into it, you may want to check out the one D&D playtest. They've released uh, three documents so far, which um, offer a variety of things they're testing for this future edition of D&D. They're being fuzzy about whether they're calling it a new edition or not. But regardless, uh, the most recent released had a new version of the Cleric, along with revised versions of the Ardling Dragonborn species, along with the Goliath. If you're curious about the future of D&D, it's worth checking out. Nothing is final, but it's pretty interesting to see where they're going with things. So, do you all think this episode was good enough to keep us out of the stew? I mean, I suppose we have to wait because we need to see how Lori does running her first campaign anyway. Yeah, we need to keep her out of the stew. 